welcome to the Beyond Barriers podcast. If you're an ambitious woman who wants to dominate your career, then you are in the right place. This podcast is co-hosted by Nikki Barua, digital innovator, serial entrepreneur, author, and speaker. And Monica Marquez, ex-Googler, diversity expert, and senior corporate leader. From inspiring stories to cutting-edge strategies, you'll learn how to develop the skill set, mindset, and tool set to get future-ready fast and accelerate your success. Hi, I'm Nikki Barua, your host for today's episode. Let me ask you this. Do you worry about what other people think of you? Have you let fear of judgment get in the way of leading with courage? Research has shown that when people are their authentic selves at work, they're less likely to feel stalled in their careers, more likely to be promoted and advance in their career, and more likely to build a strong sense of trust with their employers, peers, and team. In this episode, you'll meet Katie O'Reilly, fearless leader and executive director at the Milken Institute, a nonprofit, nonpartisan think tank on a mission to increase global prosperity by providing access to capital, creating jobs, and improving health. Katie shares how being unapologetically authentic helped her earn the trust and respect of powerful global leaders, lead her team of change agents, and make massive impact in the world. Katie reveals her own challenges and how she stepped into a personal power after overcoming self-doubt and fears. Katie shares her perspective on the importance of taking chances in your life and career, always learning and growing, and building and nurturing your relationship network. In her role as executive director of the Milken Institute, Katie has overseen the international expansion of the Institute's major initiatives globally. The Milken Institute convenes the world's leading CEOs, institutional investors, and government leaders for solutions-oriented dialogues about pressing social and economic challenges while also producing independent data-driven research and crafting meaningful policy initiatives. Katie has spent more than 15 years working with leading organizations in the NGO, philanthropic, and corporate space. She began her career as a community organizer and policy analyst for the Los Angeles Coalition to End Hunger and Homelessness and served as senior fundraiser for the United Way. Active in many organizations, Katie currently serves on the advisory board of the Global Fund to End Modern Slavery. She is the co-chair of the U.S. Board of the Murdoch Children's Research Institute. She also serves on the advisory board of Pocket Patient, a patient-centered digital medical platform for the developing world. Visit imbeyondbarriers.com where you'll find show notes and links to all the resources in this episode, including the best way to get in touch with Katie. Hi, Katie. Welcome. I'm so excited to have you. Thanks for being on the show. Hi. Thank you so much for having me. Well, it's uh, thrilling to have this conversation with you because you are, uh, you've accomplished so much in your career and uh, you've um, made a lot of impact, uh, you know, throughout this time. So I want to start off with just helping our audience understand more about you, your backstory, and perhaps the biggest lesson you've learned in your career. Okay. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. I'm thrilled to be here. And and taking some time to reflect um, ahead of the holiday. This is, uh, um, I suppose, when, when I think about the beginning, if I'm thinking about my career, it was really when I came to Los Angeles. I moved here from the East Coast right after 
college. Um, so it's been 20, almost 20 years since I've, since I've lived in LA. I came here actually to do a volunteer program. It was, I'd say I'm like a recovering do-gooder. <laughs> um, <laughs> I came, I, I was doing welfare form advocacy for a homeless coalition in downtown LA. Um, and I was motivated, I think my, both of my parents were social workers. Um, so I, I grew up with, a, with like a strong sense of social justice and wanting to do something meaningful with my life. Um, I, I didn't know really much about business. I never saw myself going into business. So the early part of my career was was working in nonprofit. Um, and I, I learned fairly quickly doing this, this type of work that as much as I was a, a very sensitive, um, probably compassionate person, it was probably exactly those reasons that made me not a very good social worker <laughs> because I, I found it very difficult to leave the work at home. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I did, so I did a year working at the coalition. I was, it was an amazing opportunity in one sense because I was young. Um, I got, uh, a, I got a ton of exposure to the policy world. Welfare reform is not an issue that most people are dying to work on. So at 23, I got a lot of opportunity that I probably wouldn't have otherwise had working, you know, meeting with members of Congress and wow. representing women on welfare and the, their perspectives. Um, so I, it was like, it was a crash course in, you know, both state and and federal politics. Um, But like I said, I spent the year doing that and sort of realized this was not going to be my calling. I didn't have the personality for it. And the the longer I was in that position, I found myself feeling feeling extremely frustrated that Mm. many of the problems these women were facing were so insurmountable. It felt like being, to me, it felt like being in the grassroots was not the place to be to address them. But the the more I connected with, especially federal policymakers, the more I felt that I really needed to be where money and power were in order to impact the type of change that I wanted to make. And I think that ultimately led me to my career at the Milken Institute, although it took a few other jobs to get me here. Um, I went right after that, the volunteer position, I went to United Way and learned a lot about fundraising and that got me very interested in business. Um, And so I've been at the Milken Institute since then where I've found the mission, the social mission is a, is a very good match also for me, but, but the business of the organization that has, it has an intensity um, and an excitement that I guess I found kept me constantly engaged. Mm -hmm. So um, if, and if I had to pinpoint a lesson, I suppose that that would be one that when you're thinking about your career and, you know, try not to think too big in a way, because I think if I could give my younger self that advice, that's what I would have said that really just it's a, you know, it's about the day to day and what you enjoy doing every day. So if someone had said to me, you're going to have a career in business development or, you know, sales, I would have said, you're crazy. That's I have no interest in doing that. But when, it, when I look at the day-to-day and how I spend my days, it's, you know, talking to people, figuring out what makes them tick. It's a very social job. Um, and, you know, notching up wins. It's easy to see how you, what you accomplish when you're fundraising because you're, you, you can see it in black and white. You're bringing the dollars in or you're not. And those elements ended up being a great fit for my career. Um, 
And so I sort of backed my way into it, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> well, one of the things um, that's really fascinating and what dots you connected there was that you wanted to create social impact, but you also saw that grassroots would be a slower and in some ways a limited impact versus being able to get to the source of power, influence, and money. And um it's not a switch that a lot of people make, you know, especially ones that are focused on impact. So how, what helped you not only find your way to getting that right platform, but also to apply the skills and the competencies that you gain in one place and using it somewhere else? It's a good question. I, I suppose I'd say watching other people do it. I, I think, and when I say watching other people, some of, sometimes it was, um, you know, finding people in history that I found really interesting and learning, reading more about them and learning more about how they lived their careers. I think um, the, I, I probably also realized once I was exposed to the business world, how much I really liked it. Mm-hmm. Um, so it wasn't, you know, it wasn't all about just making impact on the world. It was what's going to bring me a fulfilling life. You know, how am I going to like spending my time? And the more I found that I was exposed to um, that, you know, that, that sort of environment, I suppose, I realized that was really what I like to do. Um, and I think you just, I mean, that's why there's no substitute for experience, right? I think, that, you know, I always, when younger people in my organization or people who I supervise ask me, you know, how do you figure out the right job for yourself or the right career path? I think the best advice is being curious, because um, if you're a curious person, you're constantly, you know, say yes more than you more than you feel like you can, right? So there's to new experiences, new responsibilities. Um, because I, especially early in your career, I think there's no substitute for that. Because I, I'm sure there are some people who you know are born and born knowing they want to be a physicist or they want to be a doctor or they want to be an artist. But I think the vast majority of people need the lived experience, because it's very difficult to know what a career is like until you're in it day to day. Um, So that's, yeah, that's, uh, that's what I found to be the most probably useful. That's wonderful. Now, you're currently at the Milken Institute, which is a very elite place to, um, you know, work and be part of that organization. How did you find your way there? Um. I, you mean in terms of how did I get here or how did I find my way once I was here? Both. Both. Um, I think when, well, I actually, I actually knew somebody who worked here in terms of how I got here. I knew somebody who worked here because we had been coworkers in a previous job. Mm-hmm. And I had decided I wanted to leave the job that I was in, but I, I didn't know exactly where I wanted to go. Um, and I, I had a sense that I wasn't, kind of on the path that I wanted to be on, but I didn't really know what path I wanted to be on. I just felt like I wanted more. Mm -hmm. And so I started having lunch with people. I just asked people out to lunch. Um, You know, I I picked people typically who um, I admired in some way, whether they had a personality I really liked or they had a job I really thought I would want um, or I just admired something about them. So So I started doing that, just going out to coffee, going out to lunch, um, 
sending people emails, just asking for their time. And I found, you know, most people were pretty responsive, especially if you put in a little flattery and <laughs> tell them <laughs> how much you admire them and value their time. And, um, and I found those conversations really interesting. And one of, one of those conversations led to this job, actually. I, it was a colleague of mine who we had worked together um, at United Way, actually, and she came here to run a particular program um, and the more that we started talking about what she was, and I had never heard of the Milken Institute. This was also 13 years ago. Thing, it was much smaller. Um, it always had a good reputation, but it was much, I think, less well-known back then. And so we just started talking and, you know, we kind of came up with a plan. She told me that she was looking to hire somebody and didn't have the position approved exactly. And what did I think? And so we sort of came up with a job description that we felt um, I could do and would be helpful to her. And we were able to push it through. Um, so that was, and I, I'll say that was a lesson I probably, I, I've continued to do that throughout my career in terms of you know, building relationships with people. Because as, as I look back now, and that's something I can definitely see with 2020 hindsight, the opportunities that I've had in my career, um, whether they were new jobs and the example I just gave or um, new projects, new, you know, exciting opportunities always came from somebody I knew. Um, and not, and interestingly, not necessarily somebody I knew well. I think there is some research that shows, you know, it's very important to have close friends and family have close relationships with your, you know, with your family um, and, you know, close friends in your life, obviously, to cultivate those relationships. But in terms of professional opportunity, you're much more likely to get a lead or an interesting tip or a job from an acquaintance or somebody you don't know necessarily as well. Yeah. What's also interesting is, um, you know, 70% of jobs are, you know, placements happen through referrals. And your example perfectly illustrates that, right? That it's it's our loose networks that right. often open up lots of doors and the power of relationships within your community and connection is truly transcendent in that. So, uh, let's talk a little bit about, you know, you've been at the Institute and your um, impact has been truly significant there. What has helped you, um, you know, sort of find that right platform and, you know, attain that uh, mastery in what you do? Yeah, it's a, um, it's a good question. I think um, everybody has to it's very difficult, I think, to be successful at something that you don't really love, right? Mm -hmm. um, and I think being, figuring out how to, you know, both pursue the things that I really enjoyed, how to create those opportunities for me within this organization, um, as well as how to just be authentic, you know, have an authentic sense of myself. I realized particularly in, when you're in a leadership role, I think, um, you know, someone once said to me, leadership, you know, you're sort of born a leader, management you can learn. Um, and I think it's very true because, you know, there are like techniques of management that are easier to grasp. And when you don't have experience, there are tricks that work. And, you know, you kind of learn that as you become a more seasoned manager, you learn those things. Leadership is a different thing entirely. And, um, I think I remember it's. I remember when it struck me that to be a good leader, you I, I had to be vulnerable. I had to be able to show my authentic sense of self because I not only because I wanted to you know kind of inspire people to work with me, but you have to be 
um, you have to have close relationships with your team. And I, I think there's no other way to create that closeness um, other than, than being vulnerable. Um, I think one, you know, one example of it, when I first started here, um, so this was a long time ago now, I, when I started the organization, I was married to a woman. Um, and th this is a very, it's, a, I mean, the Institute is a lot of things at the time when I was hired, it was, it was definitely, um, you know, a lot of kind of white men in, in leadership positions here, very traditional in terms of, you know, people were married and they very valued family. And, it, you know, so I remember when I started here feeling like a little nervous about, you know, how people would feel about me having a woman as a partner. And, um, and I found that I, and I also wasn't particularly, um, I wasn't particularly comfortable, you know, discussing it as, you know, this is my sexual orientation and I'm taking on this label. And so I just kind of decided at a certain point, um, that I was exhausted with having to worry all the time about how people were going to feel about me and what impact I was going to make, what impact my life was, you know, going to have on them. And I, I decided I just, I just couldn't keep up with that responsibility in addition to doing all the work that I had to do. Um, and, you know, I don't, I don't actually remember if it was a conscious decision or I just sort of, you know, gave into it one day, but, um, so I just, I just chose to be very open about who I was. I, you know, brought my partner to the office. I talked about her all the time. And, um, and there was this situation though, where you felt like the spotlight was on your personal life in some ways, you know, um, because you weren't open about it. Mm. And that was the burden you were carrying of, you know, what will people say if they find out, which, you know, whether it's about our identity, orientation, what have you, it could be any number of things for other individuals where there's something about themselves that's weighing them down and they're worrying about what other people think. Right. What helped you sort of find the courage and that moment where it's, you know, when you're weighing the, the burden versus the liberation of it, what ultimately was that tipping point? Um, I suppose I, I started to feel like, you know, it, it, I suppose when, when you're, you're thinking so much about something and, and how to behave, I think anybody that is not being fully themselves, whether it's a, you know, a secret that they're keeping or an identity they don't feel comfortable sharing. It It's obvious to people in a way, even if they don't know what it is, that's not really Because it's almost like the energy that it gets. Yeah, the energy just feels inauthentic. Mm -hmm. um, and I, at some point, I guess I realized that and, and felt I wasn't, I just wasn't being myself. And it was, it just became too uncomfortable. I, you know, I don't know. It's, it's not an easy question to answer. Um, and I think I felt you know, that also that this, I suppose I, the stakes, I, the stakes were not as high as I thought they were in a certain way. And I, and I think that's probably good advice um, for your career too, is that people get very wrapped up. And I know I did, you know, what if I do this wrong and take this risk and that won't be quite right. And, and, you know, there's very little in life that you can't undo, you know, I mean, other than having children, probably that, that choice you commit to, and then there's no going back, but pretty much everything else can be undone. So you make a mistake, you marry the wrong person, you do, you know, that there are ways to get through these things. And, and I think um, just taking a breath and kind of realizing that, that um, 
you know, if I don't do everything exactly right, I mean, who does, I, you know, I don't know anyone that does that. And mm. um, after a certain point, you just, it's just easier to be yourself, I think. Yeah, exactly. Like when you show up authentically, you give permission to everyone else around you to do the same. So I think I also, sorry, just to, because I think I also started to recognize I could see how much better I performed when I was being myself. I, I sensed that people were really connecting, even whether it was an emotional connection or it was they were connecting to an idea that I was expressing because I, you know, I, I was really behind it and I was really being myself. And I think as trite as it sounds, there's just no substitute for that, I think. Mm-hmm. So since then, your life has changed again. Yes. Tell us more. So, well, yes. Yeah, so I was in, I was in a partnership with a woman. We were married for, um, we were, well, let's see, we were married for four years together for 11 altogether. And um, we separated during, during my time at the Institute. Um, and then I met a man. Um, and that was sort of another, <laughs> that was another moment of how is that going to be received? And do I have to um, sit down with people and explain, you know, what's happened? And um, by then I was also quite a bit older than I'd been when I, you know, first began my career at this organization. And um, I think I was maybe, I maybe was a little more relaxed about it, but I just, you know, I, I tried to just not skip a beat and go with it and be honest about who I was. And we, because I, I didn't feel honestly that it, I wasn't that bothered by it. I'll say I, I didn't feel I had to sit around and think about what does this mean about my identity and this and that. And this was my personal life. These, this was how my life was going. And I was very happy. We now have two children. Um, and again, I think I, I found that people respond and, you know, whether this is, I suppose in life or, or in, in sales as a sales career, I mean, pe- people really respond to you being who you are. And mm-hmm. especially if you're happy and you have a sense of energy, I mean, the vast majority of people will go with that and want to be around it. Mm-hmm. Um, I did feel as I had moved into management that it was more important that I, um, be open about who I am. Um, and that I, I don't, I didn't feel, um, I wouldn't let myself be intimidated by ideas that I had that maybe other people didn't even have. Cause I felt I needed to, um, set an example. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, so that was sort of how I approached it. And, um, here we are <laughs> and, every, and it's been great. Well, I, I admire your authenticity and courage through it all, but you, you know, certainly make it sound a lot easier than what it might have been during that time. But I also want to get your perspective on something that so many people struggle with, you know, whether it's about their identity or life issues or what have you, even sometimes family circumstances, that there is a, a, a level of shame or fear that tends to overwhelm. Um, and then we project that outward and say, what will other people say? Or will right. they look down on me? Or you know, will they criticize me and consider me not responsible or question my judgment about things in business, perhaps based on my personal choices right. and things like that? Um, and often that holds us back from just being f- fully authentically ourselves and bringing our whole selves to work. What 
practical advice would you give to someone in that situation that's really battling with that dilemma? Because we've all been through it in that moment. It doesn't feel that easy. It's always easier to look back and say, here's I got, got through it. What is the narrative that they need to shift to that would be empowering to make it through that situation? I think the best advice I could give is to seek out people that have done it already. Mm. Uh, because I think it there when it when when people are stuck, I mean I can speak for myself, anytime I've been stuck in a sense of you know feeling not good enough or feeling a sense of uh, you know imposter syndrome or whatever, um, it can be very isolating. And I think that when you're able to when you're able to connect with other people that have that have been through it or are going through it, it all becomes a lot less um, a lot less intimidating. And 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 especially when you're younger, it can be a, it can be difficult to to think about you know to kind of to kind of see the path in front of you because you you don't have the experience. So seeking out people that have done that and and you know modeling yourself in a certain way. Um, after that, I think can be helpful. I mean, mm-hmm. you'll meet people and, you know, in just, you'll meet people who are doing it in ways that don't feel right to you and people who you really admire the way that they're doing it. And I think um, just, ha- just, you know, sort of demystifying it and seeing how it's been done is, can be really empowering. Mm, that's powerful. That's very well said. Do you want to grow your impact as a change agent who ignites transformation in others? but you don't have a proven step-by-step method? Do you want to grow your visibility and influence as a thought leader to inspire others, but you don't know where to begin? The Beyond Barriers High Performance Executive Coach Certification is designed for experienced leaders who want to grow their impact and influence. Join this exclusive community of high achievers, advance your career as a leader, and experience the joy of helping others grow. Go to imbeyondbarriers.com and register for the webinar to learn more. So I want to talk a little bit about your um, work and, you know, uh, the kind of um, responsibility you bear. Um, The nature of your role puts you in close proximity with world leaders and, you know, top business leaders and so forth. Have you ever struggled with imposter syndrome or, you know, struggle with building those relationships? Yes, for sure. Um, I think the I mean, the answer is yes. I think, I think most people do. Um, I think there are, there are people who are better at hiding it than others. Um, and you know, one of my, one of my sort of truisms of management, the, what I off, I find myself often telling people who report to me, um, is your greatest strength is often your greatest weakness in another context and vice versa. Um, and so I think being for me, you know, there, I, you know, especially when I started my job here, I mean, meeting people all the time who had accomplished, you know, so much more, uh, sometimes it felt like so much more in a few days than I maybe ever would in, in a lifetime. Um, but I think just acknowledging that to acknowledging to myself that I was intimidated, it was okay to be intimidated, um, but but finding something, I mean, if I could if I could give concrete advice, I think what was helpful to me was finding something that you could connect to about the person. Mm. Um, you didn't, you know, if you're you're meeting a world leader, you know, I've never run a country, right? I doubt I'm ever going to run a country. But it doesn't mean that there isn't something that 
you don't share with that person. It could be you've read a similar book, you both have children, you, you know, you both um, love to travel. So I think, again, just sort of bringing the stakes down and figuring out how to relate to someone as a person. And I've actually found that to be, it, it can be an asset, particularly when you're dealing with very accomplished you know, high, high sort of high echelon people because they're so un, they're so not used to it. You know, it can be very it can be very disarming. Um, <laughs> you know, meet, meeting somebody who isn't who doesn't seem intimidated or isn't afraid to talk or isn't fawning all over them. Um, and so and so, I think just 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 doing that, you know, and getting practice doing it um, was probably helpful to me. I mean, just like anything else, the more you do it, the easier it becomes. That that's uh, amazing because it's it really goes back to authenticity again and being yourself and valuing yourself just as you find that human connection with someone else. Mm. Um, okay, so I'm going to ask you a very practical question in terms of you know um, um, you do a lot of fundraising and and business development. It's one of the things that uh, a lot of people are scared of, actually, right? It's, it's tough to ask for something, right. and particularly when you fear rejection or not getting a response at all. What are some of the things that have helped you, uh, especially when you're dealing with someone you have zero relationship with, someone brand new, and you have to kind of, um, whether it's a cold call or that first approach, give us something practical that has worked for you? Hmm. Um, I mean, in a very, in a very practical vein, I suppose I'd say, I, I remember doing it and probably this is less in this, my job now, but when I first started fundraising, I, I was doing more what they would call cold calling where you were connect, talking to people that you didn't really know at all. Um, and sometimes it could just be as simple as if I'm on the phone, I'm going to stand up and I'm going to adopt a posture that makes me feel more confident. <laughs> and it doesn't make any difference to the person on the phone because they can't see you. But, uh, you know, if you recognize it's easier when you feel more confident, maybe just standing up. Sometimes it was moving around the room just to kind of, if you're feeling nervous and you want to get your nerves to settle, doing things like that. Um, what else could I say? I mean, I think... What was an opening question or a statement that you would kick off the conversation with? And I'm asking that because these are literally the things that people get stuck with. I don't know what is the first thing to say or that first email to write. I don't know how to open up the conversation, let alone carry it through. Right, right. I think, um, you know, doing your research, like preparation is always going to help. So if you, when you're, I mean, fundraising is so much about relationships, right? It's, it's, Everybody, I mean, yes, obviously it's about asking for money, but it's also, you know, most of the time when you're approaching somebody to ask them, let's say it's a, if it's a charitable approach or it's a business approach, um, they're going to be giving that money to somebody, right? Whether they're giving their business to somebody or they're giving their charitable dollars to somebody. And most people give money to people that they like. And it's, it, you know, the, the, the charity or the, or the name of the business may almost be secondary. I know that sounds counterintuitive, especially when it comes to charity, because people think of giving money to causes that, um, you know, they particularly like. And I think um, that's, while that's true, there also are many different organizations that do lots of, same, of similar things. Mm -hmm. um, and people give to charity for lots of different reasons. I mean, we're sort of a, you know, we're a not really a traditional charity. Um, but 
a lot of charities, you know, people give because they care, but they also give because they want to be seen as a good person. And they, you know, they want to be connected to the network that is also giving. They want to be in at the right dinners and the right social circles. So you're sort of, um, as a fundraiser, you're competing with lots of other different charities, but also with other, with, with the other people that are asking. So the more you can establish your own relationship, um, and how do you do that? So, um, trying to figure out, you know, doing your research and knowing, knowing about the person that you're approaching, what is it that they like? What do they like to do? What, what business are they in? What kind of family do they have? Um, and starting a conversation that feels very low stakes, I think is always much easier. Um, because you also, it's, you don't have to go in and make the ask right away, right? You want to take the time to establish the relationship, um, to figure out what is it, what is this person really want wanting from this, right? So, and I think a good fundraiser always does just as much listening as talking, if not more, because you need that information, whatever, whatever it is they're saying, whether it's about, um, you know, their personal life, their professional life, as you're getting to know them, you need to know those things um, to figure out how to approach the ask. Mm-hmm. So that's the um, beginning of a relationship. You've also built a very um, you know, powerful network that you've continued to nurture those relationships. And that, again, is another challenge that a lot of people face in their careers is that they build a relationship, but they don't maintain them as well. And they often sort of um, you know, become dormant. And then it's harder to reach out to someone and say, hey, I'm interested in this or here's something I could learn from you. They just don't know how to reach reach out to them. What has helped you continue to nurture those relationships, especially as they keep growing exponentially? I mean, it really right. comes down to time as well. Right. Hours of the day. Right. Yeah. It's, I think, I mean, the, the, the easy, the first thing I would say is that um, going back to that, it's hard, to, it's very difficult to be successful at something you don't like. I think it's the same with relationships. Find the people that you like, because there's so many people in the world that can be useful to you. Um, you know, you're just better off cultivating a network of people that you want to spend time with because you'll do it more, you know, you'll tend to that network more. Um, I think you also want to remember, you want to be able to tap your network when you really need them. But if you're going to somebody only when you need them, it's not going to be a very fulfilling relationship. I mean, just think how you feel if somebody's always constantly asking you for favors or you sit down with your, everyone has the friend they sit down with that just talks only about themselves all the time, you know, so you don't, you don't want that. Um, So, you know, you want to uh, spend time cultivating relationships with people that you find interesting, you know, that you can have conversations with beyond just work. I mean, I think that probably the most successful people that I know have very little, um, very little separation between their, their, professional and personal relationships. And that's obviously really ideal if you can get to a place like that. Um, But, you know, and so, so what does that mean? That means that you're, you're in a profession that jives so well with yourself and your actual areas of interest that it's fairly easy to keep up the professional relationships because there are people that you want to be with. Um, And the topics are things you're interested in talking about, whatever it is you're connecting with people about. I found, you know, the closer I've gotten, and I think this, this does take time. I think as you get further along in your career, I mean, a lot of people have to start out doing things they don't necessarily enjoy to figure out the things that they do. 
Um, but I've found, you know, the more, um, I suppose, passionate I've gotten about my work and the things that I like to do, um, I find I get more and more out of my relationships and network and vice versa, because it's all, it's all sort of well-connected. Hmm. That, you know, it really becomes the community that becomes part of your tribe and you're on a so sharing a journey together. So it becomes effortless in that. Right. Right. Now, you also have a very unique vantage point of um, being able to see leaders from a variety of spectrums around the world. Mm. What are some of the most common traits that you see, um, whether it's across business, politics, nonprofit, what have you, but you get to see them and get to know them in some level of proximity? Mm. Taking a step back, what would you say those? That's a really good question. Yeah, I don't think I've thought about that in that way before. But I think, but as soon as you said it, I could see how clear it was that there, are, <laughs> that there are things. I think that, um, and I'll say, I mean, over the course of my career, I've spent a lot of time traveling, and that's that's, I mean, internationally, and that's something that I've enjoyed so much. Mm-hmm. I think there's nothing. It, it's the best teacher by far. I mean, you could spend time in graduate school. You could. Um, you know, emulate every mentor you have, but just getting outside of your comfort zone and the places you grew up and know most intimately, I think, um, will will just you know s- turbocharge your your learning. So I'd highly recommend that. Um, and I think as different as the world is, and you know, you'll you appreciate that the more time you spend in different parts of the world, there are really things that are constant. And I think, and, and, and leadership is probably one of them, people who are great leaders. Um, uh, all of them, I can't think of one exception, work exceptionally hard, people who are very successful. Um, they're, you know, people have different levels of intelligence. They come from different families and backgrounds and, and um, they may even work in line, you know, different careers or lines of work that you respect or that they don't. But by and large, I think people who are who are very successful and who, you know, lead big groups of people, whether it's as a government leader or CEO, they work exceptionally hard. Mm -hmm. So it's difficult to do wrong if you're working really hard, I guess, is one thing. Um, And certainly they all have a sense of curiosity. And usually it's a they they, there's a wide kind of breadth of topics that they're interested in. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, I think there obviously are careers that probably lend themselves more to having a sense of specialty. Um, But, you know, CEOs that I've met over the years or government leaders, people who are kind of at the tops of their fields, usually can be conversant in lots of different topics because they're interested in lots of different topics. Um, The other thing I think that that I would say is they... um, they seek out places where they're not the smartest person in the room. Most now there are there are exceptions to that. Different, different some leaders I know who who want to be the smartest person in the room. But I think the people who are truly exceptional don't want to be the smartest person in the room. And that was something that clicked for me when I first started at this organization. I remember because the Milken Institute is the type of place where you meet people who. Um, are very impressive, who've done lots of different types of things over the course of their life. And so being a young woman, when I started here, there were times I was pretty intimidated. Um, And I realized at one point that I was never the smartest person in the room and how amazing that was in a certain way, because I was always, you know, learning and being challenged and it kept me really engaged. And I, and I reckon when I, I suppose it clicked for me when I recognized that quality in many of the most successful people I met. 
Yeah, that's um, very um, powerful to learn that perspective because it's really hard work, hunger, and humility mm-hmm. that can really make you set you up for success no matter what path you choose. Um, that you really can't go wrong with that attitude of. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, outworking anyone else or, you know, constantly being hungry to learn and grow and being humble to stay curious and keep learning in that. So um, just as you get to, you know, have this vantage point of seeing uh, world leaders, you also get to see trends and um, see things at a macro level and predictions about the future. What, you know, when you think about the future of the next decade or so, uh, what's the thing that strikes you the most personally, that that fascinates your imagination and what you think about the most? Yeah, that's that's a good question. Um, I suppose looking down, you know, we sometimes talk about the Institute as the, the big global conference that we do every year, sort of looking around the corner Mm-hmm. Um, you know, being able to know what's coming down the pike um, because you're coming together with leaders who've kind of seen it all before in a certain sense. Um, so, you know, when I think about the next few years, I think, I suppose there are some, there are certainly some challenges that I see ahead of us. I, I see the world being more challenged to, you know, take in, and consume accurate information that makes me concerned. Um, you know, I think you see it in politics, you see it in media. And this is something I say again to my team constantly is that, you know, as a research organization, we're doing, of course, important work that has to do with health and finance and economics and job creation and things that really matter in the world. But our convening ability and, and bringing people together from different points of view who, who can engage in, you know, civil discussion and dialogue, I think is so critical now. Um, you know, we're living in a world where you don't, you don't consume inform, you don't consume media to be informed. It feels like people, there are many, we're, we're, we're offered media based on, you know, algorithms and things that we're interested in. So I think a lot of people are, are exposed. I mean, you, you could, you could literally be reading completely different, news publications than the person sitting next to you because of the choices you make on your phone. Right. Um, so I feel also like, want to consume what fits our own narrative and our belief. Right. And, and reinforces our own, our own beliefs. Um, mm-hmm. And that's a shift that's happened over the past few years, maybe the last decade or so that I think is troubling. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, I also think there are, um, there, there are signs of, of optimism. I mean, obviously trends with technology, the fact that I think I was surprised probably just like many people going through this pandemic, um, how quickly we were able to shift to a virtual work world, you know, how, how much technology was there for us and how efficient we were able to be. Um, I think, you know, there are all sorts of trends. I mean, even just thinking about California, where if, if you're looking just at the U.S., I suppose I have California on my mind because of the election that we just had. But um, there is going back to the beginning of the interview when I was talking about coming here to L.A. for the for 20 years ago to work on homelessness. You know, homelessness is probably worse now than it was 20 years ago um, in California. At the same time, we have 
some of the wealthiest counties and the wealthiest people mm-hmm. in the entire country living here. And I think there's more and more attention paid to that economic inequality, which is which is fantastic. But I, you know, there's a lot of work to be done to figure out how to deal with it. I mean, businesses, there's sort of this diaspora of businesses out leaving California, going to other places in the country that are more hospitable. Um, you know, so I, th- so we have, we have a lot of work cut out for us for sure. Mm-hmm. I mean, the divide that you're speaking about is growing in so many ways, you know, whether it's the racial divide or the economic divide or even the gender gap, right? Um, when specific to the gender gap, for instance, um, you are a, you know, truly dedicated advocate for investing in women in the broadest sense. And um, you've facilitated a lot of dialogue and initiatives around that. What are some of the biggest barriers that hold women back? Mm. Well, I think, you know, again, this is sort of the theme of your biggest strength can be your biggest weakness in another context. I think women, and I remember, I'll share this anecdote, when I had my first child sitting in a mommy group um, where that was being led um, by a woman with four children, and she was talking about, you know, all the different things that, women do with when it comes to child rearing in the house and, you know, things that the housework that, you know, having the, the instinct and paying enough attention to be able to care about the child, to understand what the child wants. And then um, the, the emotional labor that women do thinking about the emotional needs of the family and things like that. And she was talking about being multitasking and how, Mm -hmm. you know, they call women the CEO of the family or the CEO of the home for that reason. And, And I said, I said, without, um, without really thinking about it. Well, that, you know, that quality is why they make good CEOs of companies too, <laughs> not just CEOs of the home. Um, but I think women sometimes, um, you know, if, if I'm thinking outside of the structural things that make it difficult for women, if I'm trying to give practical advice for me as a woman or you as a woman, um, how women sort of stand in their own way, I think sometimes think small. I think um, sometimes don't, you know, I, I talk to women on my team all the time who um, will tell me, well, I, you know, I, I never really thought about being a CEO. I don't know why I would be a CEO. And my question is always, why not? You know, and it, that, that isn't to say there aren't ambitious women. There certainly are. Um, but I think sometimes, you know, um, women feel they need to be given permission, I suppose, to be in charge and to lead and, mm-hmm. I don't know that that's productive waiting for permission because no, nobody really gives it, you know, you're, you kind of have to, you kind of have to take it. Um, so I think probably those, probably those are some things, um, you know, I think the tendency for women to kind of get their head down and get the work done and focus more on that while that, you know, gets you appreciated by your colleagues. And of course, as, as a boss, I'm going to say, I appreciate that. But what, you know, what gets you ahead is also spending time on your own brand and, you know, how you, how you think about yourself and promoting yourself and making sure people know what you're doing Mm. um, as opposed to waiting to be recognized. Um, And I, I do see, I I see many more men do that just anecdotally than I than I do women. Yeah, I, I think um, for a lot of women, there's a level of, sort of discomfort with uh, self-promotion being seen as bragging, perhaps, right. or, you know, the uh, discomfort of talking about yourself. And yet, if you're not visible, 
you know, you can't have influence and you certainly can't have impact. And so you touch upon something really critical. And the women that have uh, achieved incredible successes have all of these habits. So as a woman who's broken through many barriers, what is um, a success habit that has propelled you personally and professionally? Um, And what is a core value that really brings it home for you? Something that you absolutely live by? Well, a core, like a practice, I would say there's a few of them, but probably self-care is, is one of the most important. And I I think that can mean, and again, that's, that's, that's a thing I I suppose I anecdotally see women um, care less about that, you know, often we're doing things at the office, we have a lot of demands on us at home. Um, and we're the head of everything, right? We're the head of the house, we're the head of the office, we're, and we take things on all the time that frequently the last priority is ourselves. Um, and I think that doesn't, that doesn't do any good. And I, I see that a lot um, at, at my office when I think about the staff that I supervise, that they really have, you know, women often have to be reminded to take time off to, um, you know, so things for me, I, I need to get enough sleep. I mean, that's one thing that I learned about myself early on. And sometimes that would make me feel like I didn't have enough energy and there were people burning the midnight oil all the time, but I realized if I didn't have enough sleep, I wasn't going to be very productive. So, you know, and whatever that is for you, I mean, there's other things for me that make me feel good exercise, um, you know, trying to eat well, um, having, time for my family and close friends so that I feel nourished. I mean, all of those things are going to make you a more successful person in a way, because you're going to feel better about yourself. Mm -hmm. Um, So I think prioritizing that is really important. Um, And then what was that? What was the second question? What's a core value that um, you absolutely live by that you would never compromise on? What's a non-negotiable? Hmm. Um. I think a non-negotiable value is honesty. I, I find, um, you know, it's something I've, I've, people always say about me, I don't have a very good poker face. <laughs> um, and I think, and then again, that was something that used to really frustrate me or, I mean, it still frustrates me sometimes that I, it's, it's very hard to hide what's on my <laughs> mind, it's on my face. But I learned to, because there's really nothing I could do to change it. I've tried um, and I've learned to just kind of go with it. You know, I guess it's part of the authenticity mm-hmm. shtick. Um, but, so, but so maybe because of that, I've, I've, I really value honesty in other people. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I find that I'm, you know, as a manager or boss or colleague, or, like I, I, for, I can forgive quite a lot. I, I think I'm actually like, You'd have to ask people that work for me. I think I'm fairly um, open and uh, flexible, but if I feel that somebody's being dishonest or I've encountered dishonesty, I find that really hard hard to tolerate. And and I, you know, probably because I don't do it myself. Mm-hmm. Well, that that is an incredible value to embody as a leader, and I think it sets the tone for everyone and everything around you. 
So, Katie, thank you so much for um, the inspiring stories and such actionable advice. I think you've shared um, lots of pearls of wisdom with our audience to take away and apply in their own lives. So thank you so much for being on the show and uh, wish you lots of luck for all your, your big dreams to come true and to continue to make a difference in the world. Thank you. And thank you so much for having me. It's been real fun. Thank you for listening to the Beyond Barriers podcast. There are thousands of podcasts out there, and we are so grateful that you've chosen to listen to ours. If you enjoyed the show, please tell a friend about it and subscribe to get new episodes every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. Visit IamBeyondBarriers.com where you'll find show notes and links to all resources for each show, including the best way to connect with our guests. See you next episode.